Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset's Friday News Roundup. The worldwide coronavirus outbreak has topped 82,000 cases in at least 52 countries. Fears are growing that it won't be possible to stop the global spread of coronavirus. This virus has pandemic potential. Coronavirus fears sent the Dow Jones Industrial Average down almost 1,200 points. Now, that is the biggest one-day point drop ever. Dozens of people came together to try to help businesses struggling in Chinatown. We love Chicago. We love America. We want people to come back. Joining us to talk about those stories and more are Mick Dumkey of ProPublica, Illinois, WBEZ Cook County reporter Kristen Schorsch, and Daily Line editor Heather Sharon. Heather starts things off with the latest on the state's action regarding coronavirus or COVID-19. Well, the governor and the mayor just held a news conference to assure everybody that they are on it. And here's a bit of what they had to say. Our top priority is keeping Illinoisans safe. And to this point, Illinois has successfully contained the virus to two confirmed cases. And both patients have fully recovered and returned home. Our residents should continue and enjoy the city, its neighborhoods, particularly Chinatown, um, and its amenities as they normally do. Um, Fear cannot guide us um, in this moment. Thoughtfulness and preparations are the rule of the day. Heather, go ahead. Well, it's a little bit of a different tone we're hearing from the mayor than earlier this week when she got a little frustrated with the Centers for Disease Control, which issued a really dire sounding warning in testimony before Congress. And they said it's going to spread. Millions of people will be infected. Our daily lives will be impacted. Start preparing. And she said, look, there's no need to sort of freak out. uh, But it it is sort of something that they're going to have to watch very closely. Kristen, talk a little bit more about the response we're seeing. So right at this press conference this morning, we actually learned a lot of new information. So Illinois can already test for coronavirus. Um, They're going to be actually expanding that statewide and they can get results within 24 hours. So there's going to be more labs for testing. The Chicago Department of Public Health actually has staff members right now at O'Hare handing out thermometers, um, making sure they're monitoring people who have traveled back into the country in case they get sick. Hospitals are going to start testing patients who show up in the ER with flu-like symptoms for coronavirus. And then also just making sure that um, hospitals have the capacity to treat people should there be a lot of people that get sick and that they have like the gowns and gloves and other supplies they need. Because one of the things that is popping up is that some of the big uh, suppliers of these things, the products are made in China. Mm. And some of those companies, those plants are not opening until like March 10th or so. So it's just going to be, are we going to be able to get the supplies? I know Cook County has ordered extra supplies. Well, the city's Chinatown neighborhood has taken a financial hit since the first case of coronavirus was confirmed in Chicago last month. Um, Some restaurants and stores have seen business drop by as much as 50%. Mick, your thoughts about the response here in Chicago and how it's impacting Chinatown? The facts are what you just stated. I just feel in general it's uh, been pretty hysterical. Um, on the part of the media around the country and here to a lesser degree because we haven't had a lot of direct impact so far. I mean, it's scary. You know, everybody's scared by this kind of thing, um, a virus that not that much has been known about it before you started hearing that people were infected. It's, uh, you know, spread around the world so quickly. People are far more interconnected than they used to be. In some ways, it's just a metaphor for kind of life in 2020, and people are scared by it. At the same time, when you actually listen to the science about what each of us can do as individuals, 
there's really not that much. Um, we're sort of discussing slash joking ahead of time. I was saying, Kristen, do not touch your face. Everybody needs to kind of stay calm. Let's let the, uh, the, the doctors and the scientists lead the way on this. And there's a lot of confusion, too, between the coronavirus and the flu. Right. And a lot of the symptoms are similar, and so... That's and I bet you the flu kills more people that this, is this month and big, this year. That's than been a big message this month from public yeah. health officials is people, guess what? We're still in the middle of flu season. People die of the flu. Go get your flu shot. Well, Heather, several cities and counties have declared states of emergency over coronavirus. Do we have any specifics on the city's plan uh, around that issue? So until there is a case of transmission here in Chicago, the uh, city would not declare a state of emergency. In all of those towns, we've seen that happen. The other thing to think about is that we are in a situation where perhaps the biggest sense of fear is that the government is sort of sending a little bit of mixed messages because you want to have a clear, calm, concise message so people like me who are prone to hypochondria, you know, don't freak out. But, you know, when you have the mayor saying, eh, don't really worry too much about what the CDC said, I think that that is sort of adding to sort of the sense of unease along with sort of the questions about who's in charge on the federal level and, you know, what's actually being done. Well, speaking of who's in charge, Vice President Mike Pence has been tasked with leading the effort to protect Americans from COVID-19. But some are criticizing his record on public health while he was governor of Indiana, specifically his handling of an HIV outbreak in 2014 and 2015. Mick, what can you tell us about that? Obviously, a lot has been written and said about his faith, his religious beliefs, and he was widely criticized when there was an outbreak of HIV in his state a few years ago because Reportedly, he prayed on it first, and there was initially, I think, some resistance to uh, some scientifically proven methods of of harm prevention, Mm -hmm. like needle exchanges. So obviously, there was a lot of skepticism when, oh, this is the guy who's going to lead our effort. And it came on the heels. I think the federal government's initial warnings were, uh, at least the way they were transmitted in the media, was this is going to be bad. I mean, literally, that was the comment that was circulated. And everyone's kind of like, well, thanks a lot. You know, I mean, we're all prone to like we're discussing these kinds of uh, fears anyway. And so I just I just feel like uh, reason and facts have taken a backseat in some ways to the to the hysteria. Well, yesterday we sat down with Dr. Allison Bartlett of the University of Chicago Medicine, and she said people should prepare but not panic. We really don't know where this is going to go. So I think the best things that we can do are control the things that we have control of and do our best to prevent ourselves from getting infections, but also prepare in case there are measures that need to be taken by public health to control the spread, such as school closures and work closures. And a couple of the the preparedness steps she said we should take, making sure you have, you know, a month's worth of medication stored at home in case, you know, hospitals get you have too many patients and they can't see you, you know, but having contingency plans in place if schools close, so you have childcare. She said she doesn't think, you know, the kind of doomsday prepping is, is really something to be concerned about at this point. It's more just the logistical part of managing life if things get more serious. Um, today, acting White House Chief of Staff blamed the media for exaggerating the seriousness of coronavirus to, quote, bring down the president. I'm curious, how are you all talking about coverage of coronavirus in in your newsrooms, Heather? Well, you know, I think it's a really interesting 
public policy question is what happens when you have a president or a federal government that has um, exaggerated the threat of hurricanes or not been precise in sort of what the truth of perhaps something is as meaningless as crowd size is. If they're going to fudge the truth on those, it, it becomes more difficult to sort of say right away, okay, this is the truth. And from a journalistic perspective, um, I think we're all used to being able to print things like the mayor said X and just leaving it at that, or the president said Y and just sort of leaving it at that. But there's a lot of questions about what's actually going on and whether it's accurate or not. And I think that that makes our jobs as journalists more difficult, especially when we're trying to give people accurate information and in when we're trying to figure out what the actual policy response is or should be. Mick, your thoughts about, you know, striking that balance between informing the public and and spreading panic? Well, it's difficult, um, especially since I think that some of the people we're turning to for answers aren't necessarily well-informed themselves. And this seems to be an epidemic that people are learning about along the way. And by people, I mean like even experts are learning about along the way. So it's very difficult. But our job as journalists in general is to have a healthy dose of skepticism about everything, to ask a lot of questions, and to try to look at the long view, even when we're doing breaking news stories. Kristen, your thoughts? If you think about it this way, I mean, if we can't ignore what's happening, right? We have to report on it. But we need to be really thorough in asking the right questions. We're representing the public. In some ways, we're informing people that, you know, that Mayor Lightfoot is saying, don't panic. The risk is low. You know, if we're reporting that, if we're reporting the facts, then hopefully we're, we're helping people understand that right now preparation is happening. That doesn't mean things are really bad. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on Reset when we break down the biggest news of the week. Our panel today, WBEZ's Kristen Schorsch, Heather Sharon of The Daily Line, and Mick Dumkey, reporter and columnist at ProPublica, Illinois. Some other stories we're watching today, concerns about the economic impact of the new coronavirus or COVID-19 are intensifying, disrupting business events, production, and travel. Today, stock markets were down again, heading for their worst week since the height of the global financial crisis in 2008, and companies continue to report an expected hit to earnings. And Chicago police detectives say they will not make any arrests and have closed their investigation into an alleged sexual assault at Lincoln Park High School. The Chicago Sun-Times reports Chicago public schools will continue to investigate. Earlier this month, a father sued the Chicago Board of Education on behalf of his 15-year-old daughter. He alleged that Lincoln Park High School administrators did not do enough to prevent his daughter from being sexually assaulted by a student-athlete. Let's turn now to some other city news. Chicago public schools will no longer celebrate Columbus Day. Students will now get the day off for Indigenous Peoples Day. And two Italian-American city council members are livid about the change. Heather, what can you tell us about this? Well, Alderman Nicholas Spazzato and Alderman Anthony Napolitano, they said they were ambushed by this decision by the Board of Education and are really upset about it because they see it as an insult to the Italian-American community in Chicago. And Alderman Spazzato told me that he is going to do his best to try to get the Board of Education to reverse this decision. And this morning, um, I asked the mayor whether she would support a move that is pending in the city council to change the city's holiday officially from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. And she said she would not back that, which I think surprised uh, a lot of people. Mick, I mean, talk about the optics here. What would the mayor gain by opposing this measure? What she would gain by Opposing the measure, measure, I think, is that she's trying to appease all sides in some way. Um, so I think 
Heather, correct me if I'm wrong, because you were you actually talked to the mayor, and I just read your coverage <laughs> of talking to the mayor. But my uh, understanding is, is she basically said there's there's no reason not to have celebrations of you know Columbus's arrival as well as the history of indigenous people here. Um, one doesn't necessarily have to replace the other, and that struck me as a very uh, Mayor Lightfoot way of approaching things, of trying to rhetorically and uh, sometimes policy-wise as well, trying to put something out there for for everybody. So actually back in 2016, which I know sounds like roughly a century ago, (laughs) um, the city actually declared the second Monday in October as Indigenous Peoples Day. However, that was a ceremonial resolution that had no binding force. So essentially, that's been the state of affairs since 2016. There are actually two measures pending in the city council now from Alderman Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez that would officially end Columbus Day in Chicago. And she drafted that um, in connection with the Indian American Center of Chicago, who sees the continuing celebration of Columbus is really an insult to their community. It is interesting because it reminds me of the 2018 fight to rename Balboa Drive again for Ida B. Wells, the civil rights icon and investigative journalist. Originally, that was the proposal, but the Italian-American community was infuriated because Balboa was an Italian war hero from the Second World War, um, and they did not want to see that changed. Um, And every once in a while, there's vandalism of the big Columbus statue, of course, Columbus Drive, is also named after Christopher Columbus. So this has been something that's been percolating out there for a while. And of course, the two aldermen who wanted to honor Ida B. Wells ultimately dropped that proposal and Congress Parkway became what is now Ida B. Wells Drive, which intersects with Wells Street in my favorite corner of Chicago. You could say this has been percolating since 1492, in fact. Yeah, Yeah, we'll have to see how that one plays out. Well, yesterday, the Cook County Board of Commissioners voted to give themselves more oversight and control over the county's health system. Kristen, what can you tell us about this? Right. So this is something that uh, Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle first pitch last month, and it's been pretty controversial. Essentially, it gives the Cook County Board uh, more power over major decisions at the health system, which has its own board. So things like picking the CEO, the health system board ousted its CEO late last year. They're currently searching for a new one. They used to have that power to pick the CEO, that person's pay, a severance deal, things like that. Now the county board has that. Also, Preckwinkle got a direct appointee to the health system board. So now she has one person who's going to be directing information back to her. That was a big deal to her. At the end of the day, commissioners were arguing, you know, we want this because we are the ones who are beholden to the taxpayers. We oversee the county's $6.2 billion budget. The health system is nearly half of that. So it's a big deal for what's happening there. This did have a lot of pushback. The health system board thinks their powers are weakened. They're just basically an advisory board now. And then some people with nonprofits who help nominate members to that health system board, they testified during uh, meetings this week that they think this does not help. It doesn't address the root problems of what's happening at Cook County Health and maybe or mainly their finances. Well, a, a major problem the Cook County Health System is facing is $600 million in uh, medical care this year that it won't get paid for, uh, uncompensated care. Do they have a plan to address that yet? No, and if you know it, please let me know. I've been asking for months. <laughs> what is this plan? I mean, it's a huge it's a huge issue. And keep in mind, the Cook County Health System is the biggest safety net here for people who have no insurance. So off the bat, 
more than half of their patients don't have insurance. So you have to strike the balance. How do you offset that? We're expecting a briefing next month from the interim CEO of Cook County Health to kind of explain maybe what this situation is going to look like. The health system has also hired an advisory firm to help them come up with some short and long-term Uh, solutions. So there were a number of stories related to housing in Chicago this week. There's a proposal to invest $4.5 million into programs that would assist Woodlawn residents, uh, giving money for home repairs, provide assistance to new home buyers, capital for investing in and renovating spaces in the neighborhood. Heather, this is connected to the proposed Obama Presidential Center. Explain a little bit more about what's going on. That's right. So during the campaign, Lori Lightfoot backed a community benefits agreement, which a coalition of groups was urging the former president to agree to and then Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Um, When she took office, Alderman Jeanette Taylor, whose 20th ward includes the site of the presidential center, said, great, here's my plan for a community benefits agreement. Let's get it done. Well, the mayor wasn't on board with those restrictions, which included much deeper affordable housing protections for low-income residents than the mayor says is practicable. So this week she released her plan, and it really focuses on the vacant lots that the city owns near the center. So the city owns almost a quarter of all of the vacant lots near the Obama Presidential Center. So what the city plans to do if this is approved by the city council, which I think is a very much an open question, would be to take those lots and divide them in half and basically say we want owner-occupied single-family homes on half and we want rental housing on the other half. And the other half with the rental housing, we're going to make you put aside somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of those units for low and moderate income. Now, I talked to Alderman Taylor and she said, well, that's great, but that doesn't come any we're close to addressing the need of the very poor um, in Woodlawn who have really seen their community suffer from decades of disinvestment. So this is going to be a big fight. Um, People can offer their feedback through March 6th on this, and then it would potentially be introduced to the city council. And I bet we'll be off to a race of uh, tough, tense hearings. Mm, Well, as Heather mentioned, Community members have been pushing for this community benefits agreement from from the beginning. And, and Mick, I'm, I'm curious, do these types of measures, $4.5 million being invested in this way, does that go far enough, you think, to address what residents are concerned about around gentrification and, and housing prices? Well, they certainly say that it doesn't. And if you think about it, $4.5 million is not nothing, but it's not that much money when you're talking about all the needs um, in the area and and trying to help people stay in their properties as this uh, big development is supposed to go in. And I just see this again as kind of a microcosm of Lori Lightfoot, how she campaigned for the office versus how she is governing as mayor. Um, And during the campaign, I think that Lori has a real habit and you could say a talent for uh, talking about controversial issues in a way that everybody kind of hears something they like in, in what, she says. But then when you get down to the details, it ends up being, you know, disappointing to a lot of people because she's, you know, trying to strike a compromise. She's trying to do something to address the gentrification concerns, but she's not willing to go nearly as far as a lot of the local activists want. There, and in terms of affordable housing citywide, if we talk about the gang database, these are all kinds of the same kinds of debates. Well, this is part of what we talked about leading up to the election, the difference between campaigning and and governing. And, And I'm curious what your thoughts are now that we're seeing Mayor Lightfoot in office. It hasn't quite been a year, but your thoughts about how she's trying to thread 
thread this needle, um, you know, what you talked about on the campaign trail and, and what it actually takes to get things done when you've got to work with Alderman and City Hall and respond to what voters are saying. Well, this is really the work of the Lens on Lightfoot series that the Daily Line is a part of with six other news organizations. And we're really attempting to hold the mayor accountable for her promises during the campaign and sort of to see how those promises translated into policy. And her affordable housing policy as a whole, not just in Woodlawn, but citywide, is very much a work in progress. And a lot of people are waiting to see what the task force that she formed a couple of months ago will recommend for inclusionary zoning, which would basically mean that if you need special permission to buy to build a housing development, you have to set aside a certain number of units for low and moderate income Chicagoans. And that will, I think, shape what it ultimately looks like. But I think mixed criticism is, is well taken. It certainly hasn't gone far enough as far as activists has had hoped. There's a development for all ordinance ling- languishing in limbo right now that activists had hoped that she would push through. Uh, during the campaign, she also uh, supported a measure that would have basically ended aldermen's ability to block affordable housing in their wards, and that is also still in limbo. So it's definitely a mixed bag. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on Reset. That's Heather Sharon of The Daily Line. Also with us, McDumkey report and columnist at ProPublica Illinois, and Kristen Schorst from right here at WBEZ. Some other stories we're watching today. Civic engagement groups are warning about deceptive or false census letters. Anita Banerjee with Forefront Illinois says true census documents should arrive in the mail between March 12th and 20th. Banerjee says they should be from the U.S. Census Bureau or Department of Commerce. You can find more information about the census at Chicago.gov. And the Chicago Police Database says it's revamping its controversial gang database. Critics say the collection of gang data has been inaccurate and racially biased. Police say the new database will be more timely and the information will be vetted by supervisors and police intelligence officers. Well, affordable housing is part of a larger conversation about poverty in the city. Last week, Mayor Lightfoot laid out her initial proposal for eradicating poverty in Chicago and a generation. Here's a bit of, of her speaking at that day-long conference last Thursday. We cannot be great as a city when our neighbors are starving and suffering The pain is real and palatable, and we must conquer this in our generation, in our time, and we must start now. But on the heels of that, critics say, and and Mick, this is what you were alluding to, they say the mayor isn't bringing everyone to the table, that she's not delivering on some of her campaign promises. Unpack a little bit more of this. What, What are people asking for specifically? Well, in the wake of her remarks in the day long conference, there were a range of reactions and including a range of criticisms that went from people who felt like they were snubbed, they weren't specifically invited to the event, uh, to people who said she's not delivering on some of her particular campaign promises. And I think one of the big ones was raising the city's real estate transfer tax to raise additional funds that a lot of people want them to be dedicated specifically to eradicate homelessness or address uh, affordable housing. And, uh, She said that on campaign trail now in office, she said, well, once I got to look at the budget, I don't think that's responsible to raise taxes and just say we're only going to spend them on this one thing. So she hasn't been willing to commit on that. And, you know, obviously the city council went left in the last elections. We've discussed that on this show and, and many other places. 
And uh, Mayor Lightfoot, I think, is just going to constantly be negotiating between uh, some of the old guard. And we heard we were talking earlier about the debate over Columbus Day and then some of the new guard and people who are further to the left, who um, even when she obviously was speaking very passionately there about uh, issues of poverty and need, um, people are just not going to be satisfied till she's even more aggressive. A few other items we heard about this week, um, critics asking for, um, you mentioned raising the real estate transfer tax, lifting the ban on rent control, reinstating the employee head tax to reform TIF, um, and turning ComEd into a municipal utility. So an extensive list there. But Kristen, how does Cook County as a whole fit into this conversation about addressing poverty in the city? Because we're seeing people move out of the city proper and into the suburbs, and that's affecting housing there. Yeah, there's a lot more poverty leaving the city and moving to the And so the Cook County Housing Authority, which either owns a bunch of um, affordable uh, affordable housing buildings or has a voucher program that you can then take this voucher and go rent from a private landlord, they've had a wait list for that voucher program um, that hasn't been open for more than a decade. And they're actually in a few months going to open that wait list. So they have a little over 13,000 vouchers. They have about 5,000 people on the wait list now. And that sounds like a lot, but they've been whittling that down for years. And they want to make sure that they have someone to give this voucher to when they open it. Um, so that's that's a big thing that they're doing. And they're also looking to expand housing in other areas. They're looking to build new buildings in Evanston and Chicago Heights. So um, they see this as a real need. Preckwinkle, also another county leaders are launching an affordable housing task force to study the issue in the suburbs specifically. Can I just say something quickly about the notion of these wait lists? The CHA has one as well. And it's not what everybody thinks. It's like every few years they add people to it. And so there are there's such a demand that these wait lists have thousands of people on them, but then they close it off. So it's not like an ongoing wait list. So when you hear say five thousand people on the wait list, that's grossly understating the number of people who are likely to be interested or in need of this housing because it's not a wait list like that's ongoing and rolling. It's for a limited window, you can get on a list to wait and see sometime in the next few years if you're going to get an opportunity at this housing. So it doesn't give us an accurate portrayal of the for the need of affordable housing. And right. also in this case, when the list does open, there's going to be a lottery to get on it. So right. I mean, we don't yeah. really know the true need because the wait list is closed. Well, the city of Chicago was accused this week of violating the U.S. Constitution. It's being sued in a federal class action lawsuit over its towing system. Heather, what can you tell us about this? So if you have um, three tickets, I believe it is now, the city can tow and impound your car until you pay not only those tickets, but the fees associated with those tickets, plus the impound fee, plus whatever storage fee. That can very quickly add up to thousands of dollars in pretty much an instant. And so a lot of people end up not being able to get their car out of the impound lot. So what the city does at that point is that they turn around and they sell those cars because they don't want to store them anymore. And they figure, you're, you know, the person's missed their opportunity to get their car back. So the case involved in this lawsuit was the 2016 vehicle sold for $200. And the case alleges that that's just an unconstitutional deprivation of due process. Um, and, uh, you know, tip of my hat to the folks over at ProPublica Illinois, especially Melissa Sanchez, who have been re- doing really good work on how that 
continues to extend poverty in Chicago and is really makes it impossible for people to get out of debt. So the city will have to defend those uh, processes uh, in court now. Got to shout out WBEC's Elliot Ramos on that. Who I was just uh, you know giving the finger to and in, in, uh, <laughs> jokingly, finger, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, when, as he walked by. Yeah. yeah, you know, essentially these policies amount to like a death penalty for your driving, your right to drive. Years ago, I remember uh, when I hadn't lived in Chicago that long, I was far younger than I am now. I remember a friend of mine who uh, fell behind in tickets, car got impounded, and him describing the fact that how quickly his fees and fines escalated to the point where he just gave up trying to get his car back he switched to just biking everywhere. That was his solution. But essentially it meant that he wasn't going to be able to afford to drive in Chicago anymore. And that was like 25 years ago. So think of how many people in the time since have undergone a similar, you know, similar issue. Well, before we wrap really quickly, I just want to touch on the news that the Chicago Police Department has announced plans to upgrade and remodel the controversial gang database. Some aldermen and community activists are calling on CPD to get rid of it altogether. Mick, just quickly, what can you tell us about this? Well, I think this is yet again, not to keep saying the same thing, but this is another instance where a lot of people heard different things from Mayor Lightfoot during the campaign. She never came right out and said, like her opponent, Tony Preckwinkle, I'm going to erase the database. But she did say things like, I want to get rid of it as soon as possible, dot, 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 and then maybe replace it with something. So we're seeing her try to implement some of this. It does look like on first glance, they are trying to tighten up the system and clean it up and make sure fewer people are just thrown in there for subjective reasons. But some of the qualifying factors are still pretty open-ended when you when you look at the details. So I think this is going to be a heated debate going forward as well. Well, that's it for the Friday News Roundup. Our panel today, Mick Dumpke, reporter and columnist at ProPublica Illinois, WBEZ's Kristen Schorsch, and Heather Sharon of The Daily Line. Everybody, thanks. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. And that's today's Reset. Watch your feed for our Sunday podcast when we'll continue to roll out our Closing the Gap series. We're looking inside Chicago's life expectancy gap. Until then, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. And let's talk again soon. 